Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. And man, do we have a special episode for you guys today. But before we get into it, I want to encourage you, of course to like and follow this episode and go to our website, novelart.com and check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Always posting about amazing artists and their art on our blog. So be sure to check it out. Happy New Year, people. Is it still proper to say that? I'm happy to be back. I'm fully sober now from all the holiday cheer. So that's good. I want to get into this episode, man, because I am so grateful for this one we've got the one and only justin anthony from artwork archive here on today's episode of not real art justin is one of the founders of artwork archive and he and i have developed a nice rapport since starting to work together i learned about artwork archive when we were looking for a database system to sort of organize the amazing group of artists that are connecting in our community and not real art and well over a thousand artists and a few thousand images. And we didn't really have a system, a database system to organize all that information and data. And, you know, we're a lean, mean outfit. We don't have a ton of money to spend. We're not some big fancy museum or gallery. And so we ended up looking around and we looked at several systems database systems that are designed specifically for artworks and artists. And of course, not surprisingly, most of those big fancy systems are very expensive and we simply couldn't afford them. But really, even if we could, I got to be honest, I was not impressed at the level of kind of customer service, responsiveness. You know, here we are trying to give you our business and We weren't maybe getting quick calls back. We weren't getting our questions answered quickly. But then we stumbled upon our work archive, although we didn't really stumble upon it. We were told about it from our good friend, Man One, who'd been using it. 
And he had nothing but high praise. And Man One is, uh, you know, very discerning individual. He doesn't give high praise easily. But as an artist, he was really thrilled with the product, Artwork Archive, and the price because it was, for him, uh, very affordable and good value for money. And so we took a look at it. And man, oh, man, we thought this is a modern contemporary product that we can afford and want to use. And, you know, compared to the other kind of systems that were big and fancy, maybe, and expensive, you know, we weren't feeling it culturally as well. And with Artwork Archive, I don't know, it just sort of felt like we understood each other on some (laughs) cosmic level. And, you know, they were, their product was new and modern and state-of-the-art and innovative. For example, cloud-based, a cloud-based system. That was huge. And and I don't think a lot of systems are cloud-based. But even more than that, it was affordable, very affordable. And if you're a lean, mean organization like ours, like so many arts organizations are, if you're an artist, struggling artist, looking to make ends meet, and but yet you need a system to organize your work, you know, Artwork Archive is a very affordable product. And so, you know, we have been using the system now, Artwork Archive, for, well, certainly a year or more and have found it to be incredibly easy to use, very flexible. And we found the team at Artwork Archive to be incredibly responsive and responsive to us and service-oriented, very customer service-oriented. They have responded to our needs and wants to the best of their ability. Of course, they're drowning in clients like us, begging and pleading for their needs and wants. And so they have to prioritize and triage uh, things based on any number of criteria. But I tell you what, their product really shows that Artwork Archive has a team of people that really care and take great pride in what they're doing not just as professionals, but for artists, because clearly they're providing an important service that artists want and need and doing it at an affordable price. And so over the last year, I've gotten to know Justin Anthony a bit, and I just wanted him to come on the show so that we could honor the great work that they're doing over there and and tell you guys about Artwork Archive. And hopefully you'll consider them and, and go check out their product and sign up. So, you know, I'm grateful that Justin came on. He's a busy guy. He's got a lot to do. He's got bigger fish to fry than me. But (laughs) he was generous to come on and spend about an hour with us today. And so I want to get into this. And, you know, I think you're going to learn a lot and hear a lot. And, you know, I think what you're going to pull from this really is the fact that they care. You know, the, the folks at Artwork Archive care about artists. And you can tell because they're very interested in helping to educate artists as well. You know, one of the things that they do is provide a lot of free information, educational information, best practices, all kinds of industry information, things that artists need to run a better studio, run a better business. And so they're, you know, very focused on helping to educate and inform artists with value-added content. And then that's for free. So, you know, it's a wonderful org. Can you tell I'm, I'm in love? Yeah, I'm in love. But uh, I'm also grateful that Justin came on to talk about what they're doing, his, his background a little bit, and where this is all going. And of course, he and I couldn't help ourselves but to be prescriptive and dogmatic about what artists should be doing <laughs> to run a better business and make a little more money. But uh, hey, just our opinions. You guys are out there working hard, and we're just here to support you in any way we can. And never, never, never question your ethos and values and ethics and just know that we're out here doing what we can to support you in any way. And so without further ado, let's get into this episode and hear from the one and only 
Justin Anthony from Artwork Archive. Justin Anthony, welcome to Not Real Art. Hi. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us. Or me. Man, you're classing up the joint, man. I'm so grateful to have you on. As busy as you are as co-founder, CEO, I mean, we've got what other titles you have of Artwork Archive. I mean, how did you find the time to do this? The the podcast? <laughs> or anything for that matter. Yes, the podcast. I'm grateful that you took time to come on today. No, the podcast, it's, I mean, I'll always say yes to whatever you ask me. I mean, within within reason, of course, <laughs> as every time you and I have ever had a conversation, it's been substantive and I've gotten a ton of stuff out of it. And I think, you know, we, we click on so many different fronts and have similar kind of origin stories. So I always like to take the time to talk with you. Well, I appreciate that. You're very generous. And I, you, my friend, I, you, you know, you and I met through business, obviously, you know, to be clear, it was my colleague, Artist Man One, who told me about Artwork Archive. You know, he was a fan. He had been, you know, he's an artist. He's a working artist, right? I mean, he's making ends meet, pinching pennies. He's living on a budget, but he knew that he needed to get serious about trying to archive his work. And I think he looked at a, you know, several different options or what have you and, and found Artwork Archive and started singing your praises immediately about the value for money that Artwork Archive offers him as an artist. And that was the first time that I heard about Artwork Archive. And that was probably a couple of years before I actually ended up subscribing myself. But what a wonderful product you've built, my friend. Thanks. The credit mostly goes to my business partner, John, and the great team we have to work with. You know, John built this, gosh, well over 10 years ago now for his mother, who's a oil painter out of Colorado Springs. You know, she had a bunch of stuff in a legacy program, you know, on a computer. Her hard drive died. She lost everything. So he set out to build kind of a prototype that would basically help her just manage the basics, you know, just who her collectors were, what inventory she had, where her work was. And then John and I had worked together in another company, really hit it off. I had a lot of artist friends and worked in the kind of art world. And we were just able to kind of sit down with artists over the years, art advisors, consultants, etc., and really set out to try to build something that's ultimately focused on what the company kind of ethos is based on, which is arming artists with the tools they need to make a living doing what they love. That's where our work archive got its start. You know, how can we dispel the myth of a starving artist and, and help people that have made the decision that I'm a career artist, not a hobbyist? How can we not only help them make a living doing what they love, but help them spend more time in the studio versus behind a desk and present themselves like a, a professional? You know, the, the three original tiers was this kind of get organized, manage your business, and share your art with the world. So those are the three things we've kind of continued to double down on. And then as you know, over the years, you know, I do more collecting than creating. So the collector version was built out of me scratching my own itch. I had my basement flood. I had a bunch of work get damaged. I didn't have any of the receipts or you know appraisals or any any information i didn't know where it was it was in a junk drawer here all over so when i went and looked to see what was available from a collection management standpoint everything was either really overpriced or very difficult to work with and nothing was cloud based at the time so we just kind of spun that way and now you know the company itself 
still the main core is the focus on the artist, but we also have a collector version that's great for individuals, family estates, and then the institutional version that is used by organizations like your own and collecting institutions and galleries and dealers and advisory firms and consultancy firms. So it's been a really, really cool journey. Yeah. And, you know, from the outside looking in, it feels as though your growth has been kind of explosive. I I don't know. Maybe that's wrong. But I do remember somebody once telling me years ago that growing too fast will kill you just as just as just as easy as maybe growing too slowly. How have you guys managed your growth? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think John, my business partner and I very, very consciously We both came from a venture-backed startup, 24 people on the cap table, growth at all costs, accelerate, accelerate, push, push. And neither of us were really comfortable with that model. You know, it ended up being successful, but that kind of muddies the water of what success was. So when we set out to do Artwork Archive, we made that conscious choice to want to grow by word of mouth before anything, want to have sustainable growth, and not just onboard as many users as we can, but really bring on people that it was a great fit for. And one of the things we're probably more proud of than anything else is our very low churn rate. And churn rate in the industry is, you know, people that unsubscribe. We've maintained 1% or less churn rate for over a decade. So that means we have most of the people that started with us over a decade ago are still with us. And I think really focusing on not just product market fit. Does this really scratch this? Does this solve the need that that you know artists or collectors or these institutions have? But how can we continue to make it better? Every single decision we make is user driven. Ninety nine percent of the evolution of the platform comes directly from user feedback. We have ongoing kind of round robin or roundtable meetings with various user bases, artists of all types, collectors of all types, to make sure that we always have kind of a finger on the pulse of what's going on. And every single member of the company has to do at least a half hour of customer support every day. So you never lose sight of like, what are people really asking for? Because it's very easy to kind of get into the tower and away from the day to day and lose sight of what you're doing it for. And that's kept us all really grounded. So the explosion... It's been slow and steady. It seems explosive because we've been doing it for a while. So the grind has paid off. And, you know, as we've expanded, we're now in over 130 different countries. So we're super happy with it. But there's never been like a single like black swan event where, you know, we've onboarded thousands of users because of this particular feature. It's more continuing to double down on what we know is working. Well, right. And I think that's so essential to organize yourselves in a way that allows you to keep your finger on that pulse of what's happening, right? And what people are feeling and needing, but triaging and prioritizing those needs and wants, you know, must be a huge challenge, right? (laughs) Because it's, you know, there must be a a list of a hundred things you want to do, but you can only get to, you know, X, you know, in a year or whatever. So much of it is unsexy stuff. Like so much of it is like, you know, we've watched all these online galleries, you know, rise and fall. And there's so many different exciting things with digital, you know, the emergence of NFTs and all this stuff. And, you know, we tend to try to focus on those core things that are most critical to driving an artist's success and really keep ourselves grounded, which is tough sometimes because it's easy to chase those shiny things. 
I'm just so intrigued by the value you've created and the work that you do because I felt like personally for a long time that one of the blessings and curses of being an artist and the art world is that it's, you know, a hugely fragmented landscape, right? Sure. And so I've caught myself sort of fantasizing about the the value and the power that one might create if you were somehow able to aggregate that diffuse range of energies you know, into one source, right? And and what you might could do if you could consolidate all that. And and you guys are sort of whether and you know, you thought about it like this or not, I mean, you have created that master art system, if you will. Yeah. Thanks. This is part growth, but also going back to the kind of the values of the company. You know, the churn thing is definitely something that we take a great deal of pride in, but probably the thing that the individuals that work for the company and our audience appreciate most is the educational side. We really made a commitment early on to providing free resources to the art world at large. So, you know, if it's if you're an artist um, and you're familiar with our blog or webinars, you know, it's everything from legal documentation, you know, best practices taxation, how to prep for things, how to price your artwork, how to photograph, you know, all these things, you know, on the collector side, it's best practices in storage, shipping, movement, any topic you can think of. And then really in this last year, on the institutional side, partnering with just some sensational organizations around the world on best practices and displaying public art, maintaining public art. One of our colleagues has a child with some disabilities that they really focus on arts and healing. So having them as a member of the team has gotten us exposure and relationships with some of the largest medical collecting institutions in the world. So it's really it's really cool. I would say the biggest focus for us in 2023 actually is going to be doubling down on this education focus. So we've got the platform and the platform is a great tool for those looking to kind of you know, if you're an emerging artist, you need the right tools to set you up for success because you probably didn't get that kind of education on how to make money as an artist in art school or with a formative art education. And if you're if you didn't have an art education and you're just starting out, it's nice to have those tools to help guide you along. If you're a mid-career artist, you're starting to sell works, you're starting to build your collector base. It's really nice to have, you know, a CRM, like a customer relations management system, and all these things to help make you more professional. And then if you're at the tail end of your career, it's time to start thinking about your legacy. So we love this kind of ability to address the full cycle. And education is going to be something that as a complement to the platform, we're going to continue to just really do some pretty interesting educational things we're excited about this year. One of those is we're launching basically an art business accelerator guide that is a five-part series that we're, it's probably taken us about a year and a half. It's 10 plus years of information and expert like input that we're probably more excited about that than anything even product related this year because it's everyone put so much time into it. Well, and it's the missing, one of the missing links in the value chain, I think, for artists. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, these art schools, you know, sort of teach them about how to make art, but not how to make money. A wonderful creative. Your technique, I mean, you come out as an absolute dialed like artisan. But if you look at the percentages of those that still practice art that have a fine art degree, you know, two years out, it is mind-blowing how low that is. And you're often saddled with a debt that you have to pay back. 
So it is an important fundamental skill set for any artist that's chosen to be a career artist to have. Yeah. I mean, you don't even come out of art school understanding how your industry works. I mean, it's one thing to know how to do accounting or marketing or have a sense of business law or, or whatever. But, you know, most artists come out of art school not even understanding how the art world operates. Yeah, that's true. And I, you know, I, I know that there are schools in the last few years that have started to incorporate that a little bit more into their programs. But like, I think as a general statement, that's really fair. You're totally right. And, and that was one of the driving factors in wanting to get so serious about the educational side, because I don't care how amazing an artist you are, if you don't have some basic tools and some basic understanding that it is a business, it's hard to maintain, like it's hard to continue on. Yeah, I'm, uh, as you know, because of course, if we have a Chicago connection, but I'm an alumni of Columbia College, Chicago. And back in those days, I mean, that was a huge selling point as to why they had students come because they taught business as part of the curriculum. In fact, you were required to study accounting and marketing and management and law. And to be fair, it wasn't always so industry specific, like, oh, you're going to be a fashion designer. This is how the fashion industry works. It was more fundamental, general kind of principles of marketing and management and law. But by the way, huge. But even if you have those basics. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. And, you know, there's all, I mean, that, that sort of core to Columbia's kind of founding principles and what have you. But you're right. I mean, more and more schools now are kind of stepping up. I was reading the other day about SCAD. I mean, they're they're doing some interesting things in terms of business education in the arts for artists. And, you know, listen, I, I feel as though, and I've said this out loud before, I mean, if you're calling yourself a professional artist, then you need to understand business. You just said the word professional. Like if you're calling yourself a professional artist, I, I think bucking the stigma that money corrupts that if you if you sell your work you're selling out you know i you know i've seen some of the most talented artists i know a lot of their evolution has come from commercial success they were able to push into new mediums or disciplines as a result of having the breathing room so if your ultimate goal is to you know put these wonderful things out in the world i do think having some business savvy facilitates that not just your creative process, but your ability to grow. A hundred percent. And it helps you sleep at night. <laughs> yeah. If you're hustling all the time, it's stressful. It helps to lower your anxiety. And, you know, you mentioned commercial art. I mean, listen, I've been saying for a long time, there's a lot that the commercial art world can teach the fine art world. And I come from, as, as you know, come from a commercial art background working, getting my start really as a graphic designer and advertising in Chicago. And if you're a freelance graphic designer, art director, copywriter, photographer, et cetera, illustrator, creative director, art director, if you're, a free, you know, like you have a business rigor and there are best practices, there's a culture around this, you know, you know what your hourly rate is, your day rate is, your project rate, you know, you know, these are just ideas that are very part and parcel to being a quote unquote commercial artist. And back in those days, you know, 80s, 90s, you know, there was a real wall, right, between commercial art and fine art, you know, and certainly over the last 25 years, that wall has been obliterated. And I tell artists this all the time. You could learn a lot from a graphic designer, freelance graphic designer. You could learn a lot from a freelance photographer in just in terms of how to think about your time. What's it worth? How do you bill it? How do you price your art? What you know, how many hours you have in that? I love when you just said the word hour. It's like I am guilty of this myself. Let's say I'm creating something 
it is so easy to completely forget about the time, the value of your time and the time you put into anything. You know, it's easy to get the receipt for the the materials that you used for what you create. Okay, I know my canvas was this. I know the paint, you know, that type of stuff. Or, you know, in my case, it's more wood oriented. And if I'm paying a fabricator to add something to it, like that's easy. But like when you sit back and realize you just threw... 35 hours into something and you're pricing it at such where it just you're making two dollars an hour or <laughs> you know it's like no you really it's it's hard that mental switch is hard i've often told artists over the years you know whatever you think you're gonna price that at double it man no 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 you know what triple it yeah. <laughs> because i'm guessing i'm willing to bet you've underpriced it and you absolutely need to build in some profit margin and you need to give yourself some room to negotiate because people are going to try to get it for less or get you know so give the yourself some of the deal yeah 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 no you know it, it's a fascinating conversation it's interesting to see artists that are embracing this struggle and artists that maybe are trying not to so much lean into it. And, you know, and, and I, you know, it's interesting because I feel like younger artists coming up today have just more of a hustle mindset <laughs> than maybe older artists that came up at a time when, you know, there was much more of a conservative approach to, you know, how art is sold and how art is marketed or, or what have you. Right. And it's been commercial since the day, like if you read a book like Boom or anything that talks about the rise of contemporary artists, these were people and influencers that were had commercial interests saying, I believe this artist is going to be the next thing or I believe that like, it was influencers making that statement, you see something very similar here. So you know, I would never, just as I would never begrudge a fine art photographer shooting a wedding to make ends meet, I'm never going to begrudge a street artist, you know, you and I both have the good fortune to work with, you know, a ton of street and mural artists. I'm never going to give any of them any guff for doing a project for LinkedIn or whatever commercial company they do, because that 10K that they make from that mural could fund half their workshop. Like uh, an artist I just spoke with just finally got a really pretty lucrative commission from a, a local hotel here. And it enabled them to buy the laser printer they wanted for a while, a 3D printer that they can now experiment with, like these things that are driving their practice forward. And it doesn't like sully the, you know, their body of work that they're doing in the studio. It's just a, it's a means to an end. And I know everyone has their own opinions on that. You know, I think uh, of course, of you got to do what you, what you feel is right and true to your practice. But like from an outsider looking in or from the outside looking in, I don't view that with anything other than positivity. Right. I'm with you. I mean, I don't criticize artists for taking so-called commercial gigs. In fact, I encourage them to do so. What I do criticize is when I have an artist who is so married to their ideals and values that they say no to commercial work, yet they continue to complain that they can't pay their rent. You know, I say, I say you can't, you can't have it both ways, you know. It's tough. I, yeah, I'm torn on that. So if you're willing to die on that cross, you have to understand that the downside is you may never be successful in what you want to do or what, you know, is that core truth for you as an artist. And that may be okay. That may be an okay alternative for you. I just, I think it's very interesting. I see so many artists, there's a local artist here that 
makes textile-based work. He He's a painter. That's what he wants to be doing. But he did this experimentation with textile stuff that he didn't love, but it is amazing. Like, I find it incredible. It's very saleable. He had a huge amount of success with it and kind of had to hold his nose, continuing to put out more. But now he's been able to travel the world sit in residencies that he never would have otherwise been able to do. So it opened up opportunities. So I'm not saying that's the right path for everyone, but I'm definitely saying I tend to see artists that are more open to doing the occasional commission or things like that. But it has to be true to you. You can't, like, if you feel like you're being compromised or anything like that, like, I wouldn't want to ever force anybody's hand, but I totally understand it. Yeah, I I do too. And I encourage a couple things. I encourage artists to always listen to their intuition, listen to their gut, you know, be true to their ethics, morals, values, all that stuff. But I also encourage them to, if they can, if it's their ethos, to diversify and think about the work you do and the kind of work you do in a way that allows you to, you know, diversify and spread some of that value around so that. Maybe you're not selling a bunch of your fine art, but oh, you, the phone rings and you get that commercial gig that pays your your and bills. Yes, there's a ton of artists that every pretty much every artist reveres or would revere that have storied careers, amazing careers, are in museums that were artists for hire. Hundred percent for their onset. Hundred percent. Yeah, you know, one of the things I love about artwork archive and and you know i sort of feel like you guys if anybody had if anybody had the the chance opportunity to do this it would be you guys but when i was in chicago there was a, a moment there where one of the firms that rep me as a artist as a freelance artist offered me a job as a rep and so for a minute i was working as a commercial artist representative so my clients were you know on the demand side, you know, my clients were Leo Burnett and DDB Needham and so on and so forth. And on the supply side, of course, you know, photographers, illustrators, copywriters, that kind of thing. And one of the coolest tools that we had was this database. And we called it the Great Wall. And because we had offices all over the world, but also specifically, you know, in Chicago, and we had thousands of, of freelancers in our database. If I got a call from Leo Burnett. And they said, you know what? We've got a project from Kellogg's. It's a new brand. Not only do they need to design the the packaging, but then they need a food photographer to shoot the ad or whatever the criteria was, right? I could literally go into the database. I could select all kinds of criteria, you know, food photographer, X years of experience, you know, thousand dollar day rate, they need to be available on these dates, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You hit search, boom, I'd get three or two or 10 artists that fit that criteria. And I could literally call and get them, you know, assigned to that job or set up meetings or what have you. And, and that's, that's, you know, sort of going back to what I was saying about, you know, the consolidation that you guys are doing is it's just such a powerful thing to be able to slice and dice it like that. We have a lot of advisors. So Users of the system, you know, if you're institutional or you're a, let's say you're an advisory firm or consultancy, a lot of them are using it just for that, like as their research tool, either they're managing their own kind of stable of artists within their own accounts, or they're using our discovery platform to find people. But we have 
organizations reaching out all the time, either using our discovery platform that have no artwork archive account, just to find say, I'm a hotelier, I'm going to open up, you know, a new hotel in Austin, show me who are the artists in that particular area, you know, to that point, I, you know, this, this is somewhat non sequitur, but it makes me think of, you're talking about commercial stuff. I'm sure there's always been multiple ways to make money as an artist. It seems to me like I've seen a lot of different paths open up in the last 10 years that like we see more and more artists not transitioning, but experimenting with new things. So a couple examples, you know, for your artist audience that may or may not like resonate or or spark an idea. But one of the things we've seen is artists that do, you know, one of a kind, you know, originals delving into prints over COVID. We saw probably a two to 300% increase in the amount of prints and addition to work generated on the system. And we started digging into that trend and, and why. And a lot of the times it was just, you know, people aren't going in, walking into galleries. I'm not able to do my art fair. So this is an easier way for me to drop something in a tube and get it out to people. So, you know, that was definitely a path. The other thing, and the, these are kind of these things that are like art adjacent that you don't necessarily have to compromise your, you know, principles or practice. We've seen a lot of artists do supplies for film studios, commercial studios, and things like that, because they're looking for art that they have the ability to use for, like, if you look at a television show and you see art on the wall, that art has to be cleared to be seen. So you have all of these studios. We saw this starting to happen in Atlanta because so many studios were moving down there to do shoots that these artists started gravitating there and you know putting together these series of works that they could sell or rent to these studios. And that was like, I hadn't seen that income source before. So there's a lot of interesting paths that we we see artists taking you know over the last couple years that the licensing of their work working with you know a lot of the street artists working with fashion brands and things like that or just clothing makers in general and licensing either patterns or styles or it's it's been it's been interesting yeah i mean you hit on a couple different things there the licensing part there was a point in our history and journey where we took a hard look at art licensing and ended up exhibiting a couple of years at Surtex, which is the big art licensing show in New York at Javits. And it's interesting to think about the history of art licensing or licensing generally, but certainly art licensing. And I have a friend whose mother was a artist, graphic designer who did very well in the early days of our licensing, you know, with the big fat advances and the nice fat back end and all this stuff. And several things sort of happened along the way that really started to change that business, not the least of which was the 08 crash. That was the real jolt to the model. And then you started seeing things like Amazon coming on and really changing the game for department stores and malls and things. And so that's been one trend. The other trend was the sort of what I call the print-on-demand trend as well. Mm-hmm. So you have these print-on-demand people who need a, just a bunch of art, right? So the, those kinds of licensing deals tend to be 10% on, you know, sold items or whatever. Well, and then crowdsourcing it, user-generated content, all, you know. all that, right? There's a saturation there. But what I'm getting at is the fact that, you know, as I was talking to artists and we were representing them in the space, it was really interesting because one of the 
bottlenecks for us, we, we realized very quickly, was digitizing the art at a high enough resolution that would make it a viable end product. Right. And, you know, that's a real struggle for artists because, you know, museum quality, high res photography is expensive (laughs) to get done, let alone moving the art to and from and all this stuff. So it's an interesting challenge, you know, because on one hand, from a talk about making money, you know, we love the licensing model. That's that's you know, we make money when we sleep when we're licensing our IP. Right. But with our work archive, for example, I mean, people are, you know, uploading their images and what have you. But it's not necessarily, you know, there's no minimum requirement for resolution <laughs> necessarily. Right. Yeah. The, the artists that do either are digital artists or the artists that focus most on that type of thing are probably the group that are uploading, you know, TIFFs or high, you know, ultra high res for for printing and stuff. But the majority are just, if I have to send a packet to a gallery or to put it in front of clients, they're going to be viewing it on the web most of the time anyway. Our system has the ability to, you, you upload the original to the system and then the system will show a pared down but still really nice looking version for the web, you know, disable right click and all that stuff to prevent copyright. But if you do anything printed out from the system, like a catalog or portfolio page or any of that stuff, it will pull that high res version so that what you're presenting really looks crisp. If you need to send something to the print shop or anything like that, and you do happen to be someone who's doing edition work or digital work, you can send them that too. So, But the system kind of automatically upscales or downscales the original based on needs. Yeah. Building on this theme of sort of monetizing one's work, I mean, I, uh, again, have had so many conversations and it's funny because people, artists are sort of very, sometimes very reluctant, right? And you mentioned sort of limited edition prints, which is fabulous, a wonderful way, right, for artists to monetize their work and and what have you. And, And it's been interesting because I've often encouraged artists to consider a merchandising strategy, right? Like what about t-shirts, mugs, hats, patches, stickers, keychains, so on and so forth. And it's interesting because some artists get it right away. Some artists are sort of like, what are you talking about putting my art on a coffee bug? I'm like, well, guess what? The gift shop at MoMA does it. Right. <laughs> you know, right. the gift shop at, at the Met does it, you know? It's, it's tough. Like I tend to believe right or wrong that there's this middle ground. So I love... A lot of people think prints and they just think, you know, like digital repros, no value, kind of like throw away easy stuff. And you've got like the targets and all these places where you can source these like cheap prints and things like that. To me, I have seen a number of artists still be able to maintain the kind of integrity and create scarcity on smaller limited edition runs. So I as the collector, so I just bought a print from an artist there's only five of them. If I knew that there was thousands out there, I personally am not super interested in that because I like the idea of the scarcity. I like the idea of it feeling special. And by the way, when I'm talking about prints, I'm specifically talking about reproductions versus printmaking and things like that. So I do think though, if you're an artist and you do, I think there's something to be said for this middle ground between the super high-end one-of-a-kind works 
and the mass market presented prints that you can pick up at a Target or West Elm or whatever. I like this idea of this middle ground. And I think I've seen a bunch of artists be very creative in how they market that, really playing up the fact that, you know what, eight and nine of 10 are the only ones left in this series, you know, grab it and scale up their pricing as you get through the edition. It's really, it's, it's interesting. And I've seen some success and it doesn't necessarily compromise, like they're not turning into like a mass market producer. It's, it's still kind of maintaining the integrity of the work. Well, and this goes back to, you know, our earlier conversation around business fundamentals. I mean, product segmentation, right, is classic, you know, sort of good, better, best segmentation is sort of classic. I mean, the analogy that I like to use is the Johnny Walker analogy, right? Because we all want to afford a Johnny Walker blue, but you know what? Maybe we can't afford that. But, you know, most of us can afford a Johnny Walker red. And by the way, maybe your palette isn't even ready for a Johnny Walker blue. But Johnny Walker has given you a journey. You can start at blue, you know, trade up to green, black, gold, blue, you know, like. Well, and the reality is most people can't stroke checks or swipe for the blue. The reality is most people won't be able to walk into your gallery show or the art fair and be able to pay a full price for your work if you're an artist already selling thousands of dollars of work. So being able to give, and I've seen successful strategies at art shows where the originals are on the wall, and you know there's a person that is going to want that, buy that, but having a smaller version in a very limited edition print where it doesn't feel like you're selling out or compromising, the like, once again, it's got to be right for you as an artist, but I certainly have seen that be employed successfully time and time again. And I've been at a show where I just couldn't afford the original, but I still wanted to be part of it. And I wanted to have something from that artist and a signed print was really meaningful for me. Yeah. You said meaningful meaning, you know, it, it is, it is a, such a personal thing and, you know, artists get that and our lovers get that. You know, I was talking to someone the other day who is, you know, kind of new to the art world, you know, she's successful in her career. She's got some money. But she was all up in arms about, oh, I want to buy art and I don't know where to start. And, you know, the the first world of blue chip art has done a great job of intimidating people like her. right? Yeah, it's unapproachable, inaccessible. You know, I was told I'm like, listen, I'm like one of the pieces of art I have that I get the most compliments on in my house framed. I bought at a flea market for five bucks. You know, and I put a new frame on it and, you know, people think that it's worth whatever. And, you know, so I don't know. I mean, meaning, value, it's obviously all like a subjective, relative, very personal thing. We've got thousands and thousands of collectors that we work with. And I can tell you the dominant theme is not I bought what's saleable or what will appreciate in value. Although there, of course, there are those that that are in that, you know, upper 0.0001%, you know, that really play that game. The reality is most people are buying what they love. Like don't buy something that you're not okay looking at and loving on your wall. Like it should bring you joy. It should have some kind of like elicit some kind of emotional response. And as I say this, I know that I was in the gallery not even that long ago and a woman walked in and said, I need something yellow over my fireplace. (laughs) And this was a gallery where I don't think anything in the gallery was under 25K and walked out with a painting. Right. And so I know this exists, yeah. <laughs> but like, <laughs> you know, buy what you love. And I rarely, if ever, and you know, this is another thing for the artist portion of your audience, 
Don't ever underestimate the power of your story. There are plenty of things that I have purchased, not because I necessarily loved the work itself, but because I loved the artist. I loved their story. I loved their technique. One of the last things I bought, the artist makes their own pigments. The colors evolve over time when exposed to sun. Like it was the technique and like she's a total badass and I wanted to own something from this person. And that, you know, don't ever underestimate the power of like crafting your story. Well, and by the way, that's such an important point you're making. And I want to double down on it for a minute because, you know, as you guys, as Artwork Archive continues to focus on artist education, you know, I'm a big believer that artists need help with their story, with telling their story, with basic communication, <laughs> let alone telling their story. You know, I've said to artists in the past, it's like, listen, it is totally okay for you to be introverted and hate people. I hate people too, <laughs> right? It's fine. But what's not fine is to be inarticulate when someone asks you about your work or your mm -hmm. practice or your story, because that's supposed to be when you animate, that's supposed to be when you get excited and passionate because people are asking and interested in, in your work and your life and your story. And I've found, I've, I've seen artists stumble. And if they're asking, they're genuinely asking. Like collectors, buyers, people like that, they're intimidated by the artist a lot of times. So if they're taking the time or mustered up the courage to ask you, you know, like, what went into this, weave that tale because they're asking for a reason. And what we've found, the customer relations management component of Artwork Archive is probably one of the most underused yet most powerful of the features in that it is absolutely critical. If I took all of our most, you know, air quote, successful artists, one dominant theme is they spend a good amount of time fostering and maintaining existing relationships and growing new relationships or you know forming new relationships and it is serious most of your buyers are repeat buyers like think of it like to use a, a silly analogy if there's a musician you like and they come out with a new album you're probably checking the new album out if there's an actor you like or an actress you like that's in a new movie you're probably going to check out the movie because you really like them you already like so similarly if I've already bought something from an artist and they're coming up with something new, I'm interested. So like playing on that trend is something that I think a lot of artists take for granted. So much of your sales will come from repeat buyers. 100%. And that's, you know, again, right? Classic business fundamentals, the 80-20. You know, 80% of your business is going to come from 20% of your clients yep, or customers. Totally. And and it's it's classic. And, you know, and that's that's what I've told artists, you know, many times over the years. It's like, guys, you don't have to figure this shit out on your own. You're not reinventing the wheel. There are books. There are like all of these problems have been thought about. <laughs> you know, all these problems have been solved. You know, you just need to, you know, inform yourself. Well, and it's also, and I think this is one of the most difficult things for artists, especially in the modern day, is when Instagram came out. Oh, my God, I got to drop everything and only, you know, what's the new shiny thing? When e-commerce started coming out. Well, is Shopify right for me? Is Squarespace commerce right for me? Is WordPress and Woo and all this stuff like I got to sell online? No, you don't. Unless you're selling mass market prints and just need like a frictionless, like one click checkout, you do not. No collector is not going to take the time to like, if you don't have a one click checkout, that's not going to prevent anybody who's serious about buying your work 
from doing it. They understand the shipping may be different. You may want Venmo versus Squid. Like they're going to work with you on that. And P.S. It's an opportunity to form a relationship with that person. So I see so many artists suffer so much kind of brain damage from analysis paralysis. I've got to be on this platform. I got to be on that platform. And by the way, the most current example of that are NFTs. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, so John and I are hardcore nerds. We've both been in crypto since I think 2015 and really familiar with the tech and always thoughtfully observing from a, a distance, but also mixing it up ourselves and experimental. We did a podcast, I think it was either a year, year and a half ago called NFTs Friend or FOMO, and it's on our webinar page. But Every artist was like, I'm missing out. I need to get on this NFT thing. And I'm just like, you need to pump your brakes. Right now, if you're thinking that this is a way to establish yourself or set yourself apart, right at the day we did the webinar, there was over 80 million works of art on OpenSea alone. And forgetting about all the other inherent problems. And I have nothing against NFTs. I think it's super interesting. I think the concept of the smart contract and things like that and all these things that are like inherently good about it will get worked into things in the future. But this like race toward the uh, Basel, so not this year's Basel, but last year's Basel. I mean, every booth that had the most people was an NFT related booth. And all those companies are smoked now. Like it was either vaporware to begin with, or it's not, you know, so I think we'll continue to see growth in this space, but it's not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet. It's just yet another outlet and yet another medium for putting things out there. But if you don't practice the fundamentals, it doesn't matter like what the outlet is, whether it's NFTs or the metaverse and all the things that you know one can do. I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, it was so interesting to watch and the whole thing kind of develop in part, at least my journey around it, because... You know, I'm, I'm remembering back to the pandemic and the quarantine and, you know, hours spent as a fly on the wall in Clubhouse listening to artists and experts talk about this, you know, exciting new silver bullet called the NFT. And, you know, it was just a fascinating thing to observe and watch because, you know, I'm a man of a certain age with a certain amount of experience. And I think I was able to sort of look at it almost as a sociologist, but, you know, but also as a market researcher as well to say, you know, and also knowing the art world, it's like, guys, for starters, sure. If you're Shepard Ferry, it probably makes sense for him to launch an NFT because he has a following. If you don't have a following, don't bother. And P.S., you're basically taking a topic and things are a little bit different now than they were a year, a year and a half ago. But like at the time, okay, so I've got to get a MetaMask account. I've got like, Think of the steps that you had to go through to create and then think you're asking the traditional collector or an art buyer to figure out how the hell to set this stuff up to transfer poly or ether or Tez or whatever, you know, they're trying to move over to get this thing. And then not to mention all the customer service issues once they have it, like, okay, now what do I do with it? I mean, it just, it was so fraught with complexity and things like that, you know, until they make it so you can just swipe a card or very easily do it like an institution that you trust. I think there's some inherent problems that are going to keep a lot of people away. And also, and you kind of alluded to this maybe in, unintentionally, which is, you know, you talk about more of a 
traditional conventional collector getting into the space, sure. A lot of friction there, you know, in terms of trying to get involved. But I was at a conference uh, a year, year and a half ago, and I was clearly one of the only gray hairs there. Most of there was probably 300 people in this particular panel. I'm guessing 250 of those people were under the age of 35, and many of them were younger than that. But so the panel was about NFTs. So the moderator says to the crowd, who here owns an NFT? And I was probably one of, you know, two dozen people who didn't raise their hand. You know, about 250 or more people raised their hand straight up. And then the moderator said, okay, out of those of you who own NFTs, who here has bought and sold an NFT for a profit? And another 150, 200 hands went up. And what I realized at the time was that it's a, a young person's game. It's very generational, you know, on a, on a certain level. Like if you were born digital, if you're a gen, maybe millennial, but certainly gen Y, gen Z, crypto, NFTs, metaverse, this was kind of part and parcel to your world and to your culture. Robin Hood, like this micro trading, this partial ownership, this idea of the fast buck, the quick trade. A lot of these people aren't buy and hold people. It was so transactional in nature, at least the initial gold rush. I own a few, the ones I have, I wanted to patronize the artists. They were doing a project. I think they do great work. And I really didn't care about whatever the speculative, you know, earn out value or whatever it was. But that NFT's friend or FOMO thing, I mean, we had thousands of people register for that just because it was such a popular topic. And it's probably now that I think about the contents, it's probably still as viable now as a watch as it as it was then, because it basically was kind of predicting all the things that came to pass. Yeah. Wild West days, you know, if it's a gold rush, I'll sell the shovels. Yeah. Picks (laughs) and shovels. Picks and shovels for sure. Picks and shovels. Justin Anthony, you, my friend, are a special human being. And I so appreciate everything you're doing for artists, everything, all the value that Artwork Archive has created, the problems you're helping artists sort through. And, you know, I'm just so grateful to know you, my friend, and call you a colleague and a friend. The same, the same. I really appreciate the opportunity and all you and yours do for the the community as well. And yeah, appreciate this. I want to tell all of our listeners, if you're an artist, you've got to go to artworkarchive.com and check out their product and consider subscribing because I think it's great value for money. Super easy to use. We love it. I mean, we signed on as a business, as an organization, trying to organize our, I don't know, 1,200 artists and 5,000 plus images. And it's been so easy to use. And certainly compared to other products out there, I found Artwork Archive to be the most modern, contemporary, relevant solution for us. So thank you, Justin Anthony. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, have a great day. And uh, I'm sure you and I will talk soon. We will. Happy New Year, my friend. All the best to the family and stay warm. How much snow you got? It's diminishing. My son's snowman, a three-year-old built a seven-foot snowman with me is still standing, but the rest of the snow is going on. I think it's about 60 degrees and sunny today. Wow. Okay. Good, good, good. Well, come see us in uh, California. We've got uh, a lot more snow and rain for you. We've been swimming here the last couple of days, but stay warm, stay safe, my friend. Be well.
Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.